Welcome to Terminal Talk, the podcast on mainframe and mainframe-related topics, and we have some very special guests today. What are their names? <laughs> we have uh, Rich and Randy from a large retail company. Yep. <laughs> You're going to let me twist in the wind the entire time, aren't you? This is what I get for forgetting the fourth microphone cable. <laughs> You guys just finished doing a red book on doing application code to the coupling facility? Doing code to the coupling facility, yeah. Uh, the name is uh, Kicks and the Coupling Facility Beyond the Basics. Mm. Mm, yeah. Sounds like a real page turner. <laughs> it is pretty cool. It's uh, got a lot of examples of some of the things we've done. With um, kicks and the coupling facility, uh, it's uh, using a lot of the historical co components that have been there, but maybe using them in different ways than than at least what we've seen out in the market or or whatever. Um, we use RLS, GRS, uh, named counters, temporary storage queues. Um, what else? CFDT. Yeah, CFDT. Um, got a lot of pretty cool, at least I think they're pretty cool use cases in there. Um, another cool thing about the book, though, uh, in my opinion, is we've also provided a lot of code samples. So it's not just talking about doing it. It's uh, here's how, here's some help uh, to go do these very specific types of things. So let's say if somebody hears you talking about, you know, coupling facilities, parallel sysplex, and like, okay, I, I hear you use this a lot. What What is your, like, three-sentence, you know, couple-minute example or explanation of what this all is? <sighs> okay. Uh, <clears throat> you want to take a shot at that? <laughs> <laughs> I think you're doing just fine. <laughs> so the coupling facility is... A of course, a facility, right? <laughs> Checks out. Yeah. And it couples things together. And it Thank couples you. Couples things together. Very well spoken. Exactly. exactly. Uh, you know, that's what it is. I'm, I'm assuming um, most it's, of your audience at least has a clue, maybe, no, right? It's a, central maybe. it's a central memory repository that ties all the different hardware and uh, software servers together. It's a, a centralized mechanism to uh, store and retrieve information. And that's what we use it for. Uh, CICS provides APIs that allows us to um, do different types of accesses to this central storage. Um, the name counters one, uh, temp storage, CFTT, so on and so forth. But it's just a central repository for shared memory uh, that ties your Plex together. Yeah, it allows us to have um, a somewhat distributed uh, amount of workload that are that uh, is also still uh, tied together, right? So. Uh, one of the benefits we get from it is the ability to scale workload workload out from a compute perspective, particularly uh, across numerous LPARs or systems. Um, but but it also by providing that shared component across all these disparate pieces gives us the ability to kind of um, um, avoid some of the complexities and the drawbacks of a true distributed model like sharding databases, for example, uh, you know, eventual consistency, we can eliminate and avoid some of those drawbacks uh, by leveraging the coupling facility. And why would you use the coupling facility? Why can't I just put this in a vSAM data set and 
and go from there. Well. Oh, there's several reasons. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. Well, with uh, the IO2 disk, you have different locking um, issues that you have to uh, take into account. You have splits that you have to take into account. Just some of the inherent um, complexities involved in reading, writing to disk and organizing your information there. Um, memory is much faster. So if you look at accessing memory just in a single address space, it's much faster than going to disk. Accessing memory into the coupling facility, it's an I.O., but it's an I.O. across a very uh, high-speed channel, and it's still just memory. So you lose a lot of the, um, the obstacles or the uh, inefficiencies involved in going to disk. And you kind of simplify things, right? So if we look at it from a kicks perspective, historically what you would have is a, a single region responsible for managing I.O. to the file system. And all the other regions where you're running code would talk to that region, which would then in turn handle the I.O. Um, but you can avoid that with something like vCMRLS and just have all of the kicks application regions accessing the same data stores. Yeah, and also, too, when you're talking about writing to a, whether it's a vSIM file or a DB2 table, you're still talking on I.O. where you have to wrap logic around to do something. So the components in the coupling facility that we use, such as the uh, GRS, your global resource serialization, it's not really something that's inherently beneficial writing to disk to do. That's something uh, more inclined to uh, be better off in memory than it would be to disk. So you guys have put together this capability um, but that's not where you started, right? You started by putting stuff in vSAM and doing RLS, and this is kind of an upgrade to that. Is that because this is harder to program to, or? Well, actually, Frank, we've been doing the coupling facility <laughs> before we started doing these things to uh, vSAM RLS. Um, the, I think you're referring to the uh, caching uh, cloud service that we developed. Uh, prior to that, we were already using the coupling facility data table for a sequence engine to uh, sequence uh, updates from a data capture uh, exit that we did to uh, replicate data from IMS to DB2. Uh, we're also caching information uh, from a composite service, uh, cloud service that came into Kix uh, that we were using similar as a broker to do parallel processing to uh, external service providers. And we would cache that information to keep us from going to those uh, remote uh, um, endpoints uh, into the CFDT. We also wrote our own type of uh, enqueuing mechanism across the entire Plex using um, uh, GRS and temporary storage. So we were already exploiting the coupling facility in very creative ways to begin with. So when the opportunity came up to write the, uh, the distributed caching service, we already knew that we could use the vSAM RLS and have the benefit of the coupling facility, plus we could use these other features of, of the coupling facility as well to make the uh, our cloud service uh, more robust. Is it easy to write uh, to the coupling facility? It, it just seems to people who are maybe not used to coding on the platform, it seems a little arcane. It's very easy. Um, right. <laughs> I mean, one, one example... Um, from like the CFDT perspective, um, especially again, you know, we do kicks. That's what we do. Um, the APIs are exactly the same, uh, writing to the file system or writing to CFDT. It's the same exact APIs. So um, that's one example where there's really, really no friction associated with uh, utilizing the coupling facility. Um, even things like GRS have, have 
are pretty flexible, so you do have to call it a particular way, I guess. But um, the resources you reference and define are pretty flexible. You know, you do a um, – Randy can probably explain it better than I can, but you have the major component and the minor component, which can be pretty much anything. It's just a name. And then once you establish that, um, you can use it in ways like we've done. Yeah, so think about this. In a CICS program, you read and, do an execute CICS read and write file okay, to vSAM. Um, if you want to write to the coupling facility data table, you simply change the RDO definition for that file to specify that it's in the coupling facility. So the application program doesn't even know. It's just doing an execute CICS read and write. What's interesting is we had a, um, a situation where we needed to move our key value database from disk into memory uh, for some performance reasons, and then move them back later on. Uh, we were able to do this on the fly, change from a vSAM RLS to the coupling facility uh, until we had some um, problems addressed, and then move them back to, to vSAM RLS again with zero code change <laughs> and with zero outage. We simply made an RDO change on the fly and went from disk to memory and then back from memory to disk. There are, there are some constraints, though, right? So there's like the CFTT, you can have a maximum 16-byte key, on your file structure, whereas with vSAM RLS, you can have a much bigger key. Um, but as long as you're operating within those constraints, it's very seamless and, and uh, frictionless. Yeah, so being ahead of the game there, what we did is uh, in our key value database and our caching service, we have uh, what's called a key store and a data store design. And so the key, being a one byte to 255 byte, goes to vSAM RLS that has a pointer to the actual data store. The data store always has a 16-byte key. This way we can go to uh, either KSDS, we could go to an extended RBA for uh, uh, ESDS, or we can go to the coupling facility here again with no code changes. The the key store is still on disk, but the actual data, the, the volatile part of the information, can be memory or disk. Now, you're doing a, a lot of work. You keep saying, oh, it's so simple, I just do this and this, this. But, <laughs> but my mother is going to send the longest email in the world after this, asking what you know, RLBLM is. Um, a lot of the work you do is to make it seem seamless to the, the those consuming your services. Um, does that ever get frustrating? Like you just want to say, hey, look at all the stuff we're doing back here? Or <laughs> does it, is it rewarding at all? Oh yeah, very rewarding. <laughs> so, uh, so because we've written APIs to address these services, API being a uh, HTTP, you know, REST call, um, the complexity of what we do that we call simple um, is totally uh, isolated or uh, shielded from the developer or from the consumer. They issue a REST call, our service does everything else for them. So um, just having the um, accessible to any platform to Z through the REST interface um, makes this easy for people to use without having to understand what these complexities are. And that's why we wrote a book, so we can brag. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what Rich is alluding to here, we have a couple other books that, other than the, the most recent on the cupping facility where we talk about how to make um, uh, ZOS a cloud platform provider and how CICS can be a service provider, cloud service provider. And it's all about uh, REST and about APIs. And if you can connect all your platforms to the mainframe, in our, our case using CICS through REST, like I say, you, you unleash the power of what ZOS can provide to all these other platforms with an easy-to-call API. As for a um, CICS developer, here again, Jeff, going back to you, it's easy. Well, it really is. Uh, the team at Hursley has created a great product, multi-language uh, uh, application 
uh, server, but they have this API, the Exec Kicks API, where you can access all these different features of ZOS with a simple format, a, si- a simple um, set of commands. Uh, I've been working on CICS for 38 years now. When I started in 1979, I first learned how to write an execute CICS read file. And I'm still doing today an execute CICS read file. It's the same API. Now, what it does under the covers, who knows who cares, right? That's what the, the Hersey team takes care of. So whether it's calling a shared data table, a native vSAM, a vSAM RLS, or a CFDT, it's still an execute CICS read file. So that's the simple part that I'm referring to. Also, too, I, I write in Assembler and I write in COBOL. Our team does basically uh, COBOL and Assembler. And um, so whether we're using one language or the other, or C or PL1. There are any PL1 people out there anymore? He's code PL1 years ago. Mm, I'm sure they all do the exact same <laughs> exact kicks read file. So the same. That's why it's so easy. It's just a. It's the same API regardless of language. But wait, I thought APIs were invented like five years ago. <laughs> that's, that's what I've heard. Yeah, about that. Um, yeah. <clears throat> so if you think about it. Kicks has been doing this um, since back. Uh, version 1.3 of CICS years ago was their first command level version. Prior to that, it was macro level. It was a little bit more challenging uh, for, for uh, people to understand the DFHSC type equal get main, DFHFC type equal read, or, or what have you, uh, the old macro level. But when they created these APIs 40-some years ago, <laughs> uh, that does make programming on this platform very, very easy, especially when you want to get to the coupling facility. Yeah, that's kind of a good point. You know, obviously, API is not something new. It, it has kind of been co-opted or, or, or more closely associated with, like, web-based RESTful interactions, inter-system inter, uh, communications now instead of internal program calls, which is basically what we used to call APIs. Right. <laughs> So oh, uh, I, want, I did want to mention, though, that there are a couple other authors on one, at least one of those books that, that we published, right? Yeah. <laughs> I know a couple that of... That happen to be in this room. I a think. couple of really smart guys were involved. <laughs> no, we were referring to Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that <clears throat> <laughs> So uh, you said you were writing assembler primarily. Yeah. And then you said well, COBOL assembler. Cobalt and some mix, yeah. I wouldn't say primarily. Well, it depends. It depends what the uh, you know what the, what the oper- or what the uh, program is supposed to accomplish. You know, <clears throat> in our caching service, we're about seventy five percent cobalt, twenty five percent assembler. But in our key value database or object store, it's seventy five percent assembler, twenty five percent cobalt. Depends upon the complexity, what you're trying to accomplish. Uh, some languages are inherently better for doing one task than another. Yeah, I noticed that there's one language <laughs> you didn't mention. <laughs> Uh, I mentioned PL1. I mentioned C. Uh, JavaScript? Oh, no. Which one? Oh, yeah, Java. Python. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, we, you know, not, there's, we have nothing against uh, Java. It's just, you know, it's not something that... <laughs> okay. For our listeners. <laughs> For our listeners... Well, Rich and Randy are not floor. real fans of the <laughs> Java. Java language. I mean, Java does have its strengths, and it has its it has its weaknesses and its limitations as well too. You know, release dependent, not backwards compatible. 
anytime you have to do garbage collection, that means there's a problem of it leaving garbage. I mean, just simple stuff like that. <laughs> um, but, uh, but no, not to diss a language, you know, there is, it does have its uh, purpose. There's a fit for purpose, um, you know, with the experience that our team has, uh, COBOL and similar just seem to be the, the better fit. And you know, we're running, you know, hundreds of millions of transactions a day just through our dedicated cloud plexes. Uh, we're, we're adding new We can't talk about that yet, though. We can't? Never mind. <laughs> Forget I said that. But the, but the point is, we have to look at the efficiency, right? And the language does make a difference. There's, you know, with LE on the front of COBOL, we have to take that into account because there's overhead to start and stop a program in COBOL because of LE. And in Assembler, we don't have that. And so there's there's things that if, if we're running, uh, you know, a couple hundred thousand or a million transactions, uh, COBOL might be a good fit. If we're doing several hundred million, Assembler would probably be the better fit. Um, and so because of that, we, we evaluated using Java, and we just uh, there's a lot of good performance enhancements in it, but we just saw with our skill sets we chose to use other languages. But here again, it really depends upon the skill set of the developer, uh, what the need is of that application to determine the, the language. Um, so anyway, that's my thoughts. One of the things I really admire about the, the efforts you've done recently with you know the, the services you've built and just the uh, everything you knew you're bringing to the table is everything is usually drawn from a requirement or a problem that a consumer of it brought up. And a good part of your success is networking what you've built with these people. Um, what is your general attack to uh, to networking and socializing some of the work you've done? Yeah, we, we take kind of a uh, two-pronged approach, I guess. We we take kind of a formal approach. We set up like quarterly, quarterly kind of sync-ups where we invite uh, some of the SMEs from various application areas, get in a room, talk about, one, you know, what with our current services, what's working, what other features would be useful, you know, what's not working, you know, uh, but also from a new product perspective, you know, is there anything else we can do for you? And we just kind of have a um, free for all kind of discussion and let them let them just spill spill uh, their requirements to us, if you will. Requirements kind of harsh word in that context is. It's just ideas, right? We're just looking for things that can help them do their day-to-day -day job better. Uh, and if, if we can provide that, we, we want to try to do it. Uh, but also, it's, it's not just, you know, um, <clears throat> predefined, pre-scheduled meetings. We, we've got Slack channels where all of our developers can hit us at any time of the day. Um, and on the fly, if something comes up, some new business requirement comes up associated with an existing product or just something new that they can't get done with the tools they have available to them at the time, um, we're, we just all, try to always stay open to what they're doing. At the end of the day, you know, our job is to enable them. Uh, you know, we're, we're kind of behind the scenes. We don't write business applications. We write more infrastructure middleware type tools to help our developers do their jobs and and that's just kind of in a nutshell um where we come from and and how we go about it yeah so a lot of the uh services that we've created have been in response to uh failures on other products and so what we what we look at doing is uh when the application developers contact us we, we look at it from two different perspectives one is um what are the strengths of the zos platform 
Okay, and so we look at how do we address uh, ex- exposing those or utilizing uh, services uh, that will uh, exploit those capabilities on Z. We also look at in distributed world what are some of the shortcomings or some of the um, um, obstacles that they have there, some of the barriers they have, and what can we do that on the Z platform to alleviate that or um, get, get around that. So if we look at the, the shortcomings of the distributed, we look at the strength of, of the Z platform, that's where we find that sweet spot to come up with the services that we can develop for our customers, our consumers to use. And our consumers are predominantly X-based, you know, distributed consumers. We do have uh, Z Clients calling us as well, too. Uh, here again, with REST APIs, any platform anywhere can call it. You know, you guys have been talking about the importance of APIs in the platform and, and doing some some really groundbreaking stuff for, for a long time. How did you get started? How did, how did you get there from, I mean, it's not like people... <laughs> Have have found the key to do what you guys have done. Well, is I mean, it's that that discussion is really just an extension of the question that uh, that Jeff just asked. Um, one of those more informal channels was just hearing, you know, paying attention to what's going on in the environment and catching wind of of an issue that one of our dev teams was having. Um, and it, it happened to be for the caching service at this time, you know, and we caught wind of uh, a team that needed some some that had some very particular SLAs around a caching solution that they needed, and they went through several iterations trying to get various off-the-shelf type products to work, um, and it was continuing to not work. <laughs> um, and it, that just, uh, you know, by catching wind of that, we were like, you know, this sounds like something we might could do. We might could provide some help here, right? And um, so we went off and uh, developed a little prototype, even though the prototype was pretty solid. Um, took it to them and, and um ultimately ended up with uh, a product that was better than anything they had tried and, and it's what they ended up going to production with um, and that that experience gave us some um, some exposure uh, within the organization and it gave us ideas about where to go from there because we hadn't really attacked product development with restful API front ends from a ZOS perspective at the time. And, but that was the first one, and that's what gave us the ideas, and we took it from there, and we've been able to apply the same model, which is based on you know the cloud delivery model, um, to continue to develop products that provide value for our consumers. But we didn't have a project for this. We were, Rich and I weren't even on a team together. We're on different teams doing different things. So when we saw the opportunity, we made the most of it. You know, we wanted to go ahead and take advantage of the situation um, and, and look at uh, creating a cloud environment. Cloud's not a where, it's a how, right? It's not a where, it's a how. It's a delivery model. And so we looked at creating the self-service provisioning portal. We created the meter-measured um, uh, ability uh, from the design of the API for these services. Um, the ZOS platform is a great platform to, for cloud because it's got four of the five essential characteristics already baked into it. The fifth one, the self-service provisioning, of course, uh, needed to be worked on and, and is being addressed today. But we took the most of the opportunity and took charge and created the uh, caching service. Um, same thing with our key value database. Nobody asked us to do it. 
we just decided this is the the gap that uh, the mainframe had. You had a very good um, relational database, a very good hierarchical database, but they did not have a key value object store. So we decided to create our own. And of course, when you design it to be a RESTful API, any platform anywhere can call it, and it became very, very popular. So I think to answer your question there, Frank, is uh, we got started because we wanted to make the opportunity and uh, make the opportunity happen. One of the coolest things about that service is the whole vSAM RLS part of it. Uh, and, and sometimes when I'm telling the story about you guys and I get up to the part and say, you know, vSAM, they use vSAM RLS, they go, oh, yeah, yeah. That's when they, get, <laughs> they really dig into it. Uh, I think a lot of our listeners might not be familiar with that. Can you kind of talk a little bit about that component of it? Sure. Go right ahead, Rich. <laughs> How's you the bottom should... of that bus look? <laughs> Are you sure you want me to talk about RLS right now? It's probably the better oh, yeah, question. Good, good point, good point. Uh, VSAM RLS is, is, uh, is, I think, one of the most uh, advantageous features of ZOS in, in the last uh, several years. It allows us to have VSAM uh, accessible for read-write update um, across multiple servers, you know, at the same time. By the way, RLS is record level sharing. Yeah, so <laughs> kind of self-explanatory, but I, I don't know if uh, <laughs> some people don't realize we, that. We kind of nailed nailed that component of it so yeah, far. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Way back when, vSAM was accessible to only one region or one server at a time. Uh, CICS came up with. Um, uh, inter-region communication, inter-system communication way back when through cross-memory or ISC uh, through cross-LPARS uh, and XCF through cr- coupling facility, where they were able to um, grow horizontally instead of uh, vertically uh, by putting these files into following regions. So you'd have a file accessible to all these different servers. Great concept. It worked great, but you still had the limitation of a single region for those files. So if you needed more files, you created another following region, and so you could continue to grow horizontally. The problem with that is then you have a single point of failure should that LPAR or the region or the, you know, the following regions go down. And so vSAM RLS is a way of having a vSAM file uh, defined to your Plex where every LPAR has accessibility to it for read-write update uh, and every region or server has access to it as well. So if the server, uh, in the CSS servers go down or if the LPAR goes down, the vSAM is still uh, available to all the other transactions and servers that are running across the entire Plex. So this gives us the, the ability to scale out uh, horizontally with the services as they're running, right? So if you're running, uh, you know, 100 transactions a second spread across six number of regions, then you have an influx of 1,000 transactions a second, you can scale that out across horizontally across the entire Plex without having to worry about burdening a single CSS FOR, right? So vSAM RLS has been uh, great for us. It allows us to bring on these large-scale applications. One example, we had an, an application that ran about 30 million times a day. Okay, Not a real big application, but you know, pretty good clip. And on Black Friday and Cyber Monday, it would, uh, it would increase to 190 million transactions a day, six times the volume. And so we're able to scale across that sysplex to handle that volume. And because we're using vSAM RLS, you know, you're able to, to handle that workload without having to burden a single region or be confined to a single region or to a single LPAR. Yeah, and that's just, I guess, to kind of expand on that a, a, a bit is, like in one of our production sysplexes, we've got 36, 36 cluster uh, 36 region cluster, right? 
So that's effectively 36 app servers accessing the same single data store with full update, read, and delete, write, all full full accessibility at the same exact time at the record level across the entire data store. Um, So that's pretty powerful thing right <laughs> especially you know given you know like like we mentioned earlier about the complexities involved with distributing workload and and handling uh sharding data and keeping it in sync this eliminates that so well, you don't have cool the, thing. you don't have the eventual consistency the cap theorem which is a total cop-out in, in it uh you know <laughs> i mean call it what it is it's a total cop-out you're losing uh your acid characteristics of data um which is you know for a business critical or mission critical application uh it, it's not good it's not the right thing to do for for your business so the vsam rls uh, and with DB2 and IMS as well, too, uh, with data sharing across the Plex, is you retain your ACID characteristics, your atomic, consistent, isolated, durable characteristics of your data uh, while you're scaling across this Plex. So you can have all these servers, all these transactions running all concurrently, accessing that same bit of information with full consistency involved. So one of the things that I think is most cool about what you guys have done is beyond the technical capability that you've created is kind of a shift in culture within your company. You know, when you guys started, the distributed and cloud folks didn't think the mainframe had anything to offer. And, you know, now you've got really a group of people who are cross-platform looking at a set of problems and saying, you know, where would it be good to solve this particular issue? Yeah, there's definitely some of that. There's also some of um, some of them don't even know that it's mainframe. It, it comes it it comes down to um, SLA type metrics more so than anything else. It's what works, what stays up, <laughs> you know, what's consistent. Um, but but yeah, we have especially among some of our um, senior SME uh, developer uh, community um, an acceptance right where where it may not have been there before that especially once you go through the API you know and and use it in that fashion and realize that you know what I don't ever have to see a green screen it's just uh you know something i can hit from my i can build a library and i'm done kind of thing um it's definitely been a kind of a at least some of a shift um with with uh, a good portion of that community uh, opening up to new ideas so matter of fact one of the for that caching service the the lead the the dev lead on that was very reluctant initially right um after we went through the entire process he became one of our biggest advocates right uh he still didn't want anything to do with the mainframe itself uh but he understood the value that could be derived from leveraging it so right so as a service provider he really doesn't care any longer at first he did right but after he saw the performance availability all the uh, RAS characteristics of these services and then saw what the, what we had to offer. You know, when you look at some of the things we do, too, in our key value database, our object score, um, you know, we can store uh, text, 
XML, JSON, but also unstructured data such as GIF, JPEG, PDF, videos. We stream two gig videos out of CICS. Now, who would have thought of that, right? Mm-hmm. So when we give demos to you know our leadership and to uh, other other companies, and they see these videos playing out of the mainframe, they just it doesn't really register with them at first. You know, they, they think in green bar paper and green screens, um, but uh, it's just ones and zeros, right? And uh, here again, it's all about the the REST API that allows all these platforms to call Z. Uh, and here again, with the the main focus of what this tech talk was about is the uh, coupling facility. Well, it enables us to do all these things that we're doing uh, with the high rate of transactions and with some of the uh, features that we're offering. It's all because of that coupling facility. So, uh, well, I want to thank you guys. This is awesome. This is what we're looking for. Um, I did want to ask what, one more question. Oh, oh boy. <laughs> Every time he does this to us. Well, so, you guys have not only created a set of technology that's really cool, but you've also kind of changed culture within within your company. What do you say internally? How do you have that conversation with people who are so anti-mainframe bigoted? How do you how do you drive that change? Hmm, that's a tough one because it it varies widely. Uh, obviously, you know. Communications 101 is know your audience, and it depends on who you're talking to at any given point in time. Um, but I guess to try to sum it up into uh, a statement or two, it's um, it's results, first of all. Um, it, you know, we initially established some credibility by showing results that no one else could. Um, Randy just mentioned some of the things we show, uh, you know, maybe people don't think about streaming videos from a mainframe and maybe they still won't want to do that, but just seeing it and, 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 and getting a novel perspective on things that they hadn't thought about before, didn't think was possible is another part of it. Right. Um, well, establishing that credibility is a big part of it, Rich. So you look at the sure. yeah. the, the first the first caching service that went into production, uh, for our, our first consumer of it. They averaged 15 million hits a day. They've been in production four years, over 27 billion hits, with zero failures, and that speaks for itself. Okay, about the reliability of this platform. Yeah, the code we wrote was cool too, but you know we're asked you know by several teams, well, why did you write this on Z instead of X? I said, well, if we, were, if we would have wrote it on X, we would have failed, just like everybody else has who wrote a caching service on X as well, too. So, you know, while we did some cool stuff in our code, we rely on the capabilities that ZOS provides. It's, it's RAS capabilities as well, too. And so from that, we've established credibility in, the, uh, in what we've provided for them. So when we provide these new capabilities, people know that it's going to be rock solid. It's going to be able to scale out. It's going to be cost-effective, too. I don't want to get into all, all that, but uh, uh, ZOS is a very cost-effective platform, when you, especially when you consider the amount of work that it does. Well, kind of semi-related to that also is uh, one, one of the things or, or the approach we've taken, I guess, is uh, – and I know this is pretty common in the market is like a freemium model uh, with with the services we provide. So um, because of how we've architected and, and built our automation, you can literally go provision one of our services in a non-prod environment in less than 10 seconds. And you can immediately start using it for zero cost. 
and just go play, right? You can go tinker with it, throw some load on it. I mean, it is it is a non-prod, so you can't throw too much load on it without us having to take some kind of action, you know. Uh, but just putting it in someone's hands uh, and letting them touch it, access it, uh, is a big part of what has been successful for us um, before they make a decision on our product versus another product. Uh, kind of related to the other er, earlier comments about access to ZOS, um, this is kind of an avenue that follows that principle where um, give people access to it. If it meets their needs, ultimately they've got a job to do and don't really care maybe so much at the end of the day if it's meeting their needs right so yes yeah, so we had a, a client just in the last month that contacted us they're having issues with a service that they had called on a different platform uh, where it was not providing the reliability or the performance that they were expecting and they have a job to do they're being held accountable by their leadership and by the business they support to provide a business application so they contacted us and said we would like to use your key value database how soon can you create it i said we won't you go create it here's the link to the provisioning portal so they hit the link uh, and all the provisioning is in kicks as well too by the way and um, they they go out and they fill in the blanks click and in 10 seconds it gives them the dev endpoint and the qa endpoint and it creates entire environment for them and they're up and running and i said that's it yeah that's it <clears throat> you're ready to go matter of fact pull up your your uh rest api whether it's soap ui or arc or whatever your, your flavors that you like to use and go out there and actually do a get to your service right now. And he does. And I got a 204 saying, there's no data there. Well, duh. <laughs> you haven't put anything there. Okay. Now go out and do a post. And he got a, did a post, got a 200, do another get. Gets it. The point is, in 10 seconds, they're provisioned. They're up and running. Okay. They can hit it immediately. We give them that good experience. And they'll tell others then, too. When they have that good experience and they're able to do their job, they're going to get uh, you know the reward for you know making their deadlines, and of course the business benefits from it because of the speed to market. So, uh, how do we uh, get people to use their stuff? Well, we give them a good experience from the provisioning to the actual service running itself, end to end. They have a good experience, and they'll remember to come back and use these services again. Yeah, and it's a full managed service type environment. So, um, if the service itself's not working, they don't have to worry about it. we worry about that uh, and we care about that right our our reputation's on the line so we um we work very hard um to make sure we don't get calls at night so uh, a lot of thought goes into making sure it's a stable and reliable service for our consumers um from both perspectives right it makes our lives easier and it gives us more uh, integrity i guess great uh Randy and Rich, thank you very much for your time. This has been awesome. You're very welcome. Thanks for having us. <laughs> and would you like to do the honors? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. I can do one part of it. <laughs> Old, man, Old Charlie. man Charlie, take us out. <laughs> You've been listening to Terminal Talk with Frank and Jeff. For questions or comments, or if you have a topic you'd like to see covered on a future episode, direct all correspondence to contact at terminaltalk.net. That's contact at terminaltalk.net. 
Until the next time, I'm Charlie Lawrence, signing off. <laughs>